0: Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 24 of Discovering the Old Testament. Last time we looked at the reign of King David, one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. However, before we press on, it seemed to me that this would be a good time to discuss the institution of kingship across the larger region of the ancient Near East in order to help us gain some context for our later discussions when we touch on specific kings, Israelite and otherwise the institution of kingship in the near east goes way way back but it will probably surprise most of our listeners to learn that it was not the default means of governing complex agrarian societies the earliest truly complex civilization that we have record of in this region was the sumerian civilization which began somewhere around three thousand bce and lasted for about a thousand years this was a non-Semitic civilization with its own unique language family. I say unique because figuring out exactly where ancient Sumerian uh, fits into the linguistic evolutionary tree has proven to be problematic. It's quite unlike any other languages in the area, but for all that it did provide a cuneiform writing system that was adopted and adapted by later peoples who displaced or absorbed the Sumerians later. By 2000 BCE, the Sumerian civilization was essentially dead. The language continued as a language of scholarship, religious liturgy, and magic for some time thereafter, much the way Latin continued after the fall of Rome. But to return to our discussion of kingship, Sumerian society consisted of city-states, and those city-states were governed by city assemblies and councils, much like those found uh, much later in ancient Greece. The office of king was a contingent option, a means of bypassing the slower decision-making processes when quick, decisive action was needed. The king was designated temporarily by the council for the duration of the emergency. When the crisis was over, the king went back to doing whatever he had been doing before. In this sense, it was a lot like the early Roman office of dictator. However, allegedly temporary kings discovered how to prolong a crisis or move from one crisis to another smoothly enough that they and their supporters could enjoy virtually unlimited power as long as they lived, and thus died the Sumerian experiment in democracy. The Sumerians were supplanted by the Semitic Akkadians, for whom the office of king was already part of their social structure, and it is this basic paradigm that drives the prevailing royal ideologies in Mesopotamia, Syro-Palestine, and Asia Minor. Now, ancient Egypt had their own version of kingship, of course, very close to that of their northern neighbors, with a few exceptions. For one thing, Egypt's pharaohs were considered to be gods, consistently, not merely very tight with the gods, as the Mesopotamian model held, although, to be fair, there are instances where we find god-kings among them as well. Also, the idea that the eternal life of the pharaoh would bring about eternal life for the rest of Egypt, and related ideas are unique to Egypt, so we won't say much about Egyptian kingship here. However, we should note that Israel did structure their royal and palace administration on the Egyptian model, even if they didn't use the same royal ideology. The northern model, as I am going to call the kingship ideologies that inform our discussion of this podcast, naturally did assume divine backing. There was the clear notion that the king ruled at the pleasure of the primary god of the national or civic pantheon. When one king defeated another in battle, it was generally viewed as the victory of one king's god over the other king's god. But the responsibilities of a king went well beyond kicking his neighbors around in an endless game of, my God can beat up your God. As a beginning to enumerating those responsibilities, I'd like to quote at length from the epilogue of the Code of Hammurabi, which was set forth by this great Babylonian king sometime during his reign between 1792 and 1750 B.C.E. LAWS OF JUSTICE WHICH Hammurabi, THE WISE KING, ESTABLISHED A righteous law and pious statute did he teach the land. Hammurabi, THE PROTECTING KING, AM I. I have not withdrawn myself from the men whom Bel gave to me, the rule over whom Marduk gave to me. I expounded all great difficulties. I made the light shine upon them with the mighty weapons which Zamama and Ishtar entrusted me, with the keen vision with which Ea endowed me, with the wisdom that Marduk gave me, I have uprooted the enemy in north and south, subdued the earth, brought prosperity to the land, guaranteed security to the inhabitants in their homes. A disturber was not permitted. The great gods have called me, I am the salvation-bearing shepherd, whose staff is straight, the good shadow that is spread over my city. On my breast I cherish the inhabitants of the land of Sumer and Akkad. In my shelter I have let them repose in peace. In my deep wisdom I have enclosed them. That the strong might not injure the weak, in order to protect the widows and orphans, I have in Babylon in order to bespeak justice in the land, to settle all disputes, and heal all injuries, set up these, my precious words, written upon my memorial stone, before the image of me, as King of Righteousness. What we see here is a pretty good summary of what was expected of the King, The law code from which this epilogue comes was a seminal accomplishment in the development of jurisprudence. The stated objectives are to establish and preserve order and economic prosperity in the land. We see some familiar notions, such as justice for the orphan and the widow, along with the idea that the king is a shepherd who brings salvation to his people. In Akkadian there is a word for this kind of general cosmic balance mesharum, which is roughly akin to the better-known Egyptian concept of ma'at. Both words are sometimes inadequately rendered as justice, but their meaning is much broader. We get closer uh, if we add notions of truth and order to the definition, and closer still with ideas of fertility, prosperity, and general well-being. Both Mesharum and Ma'at are the gifts of the gods to the king when he ascends the throne, and his charge is to realize that ideal throughout the kingdom. There is another royal inscription that touches on these points that I would like to share with you. It is shorter and somewhat entertaining just for the sheer level of egotism it contains. This was written for King Kilamua, who reigned over the kingdom of Samal, located near the modern city of Aleppo, Syria, sometime in the early first millennium BCE. I am Kilamua, the son of King Haya. King Gabar reigned over Samal, but achieved nothing. Then came Bama, and he achieved nothing. My own father, Haya, did nothing with his reign. My brother, Shail, also did nothing. It was I, Kilamua, who managed to do what none of my ancestors had. My father's kingdom was beset by powerful, predatory kings, all holding out their hands, demanding to be fed. But I raged amongst them like a fire, burning their beards and consuming their outstretched hands. Only the Danunian kings overmastered me, and I had to call on the king of Assyria to assist me. I, Kilamua, son of Haya, ascended my father's throne. Under their previous kings the people had howled like dogs. But I was a father, a mother, and a brother to them. I gave gold, silver, and cattle to men who had never so much as seen the face of a sheep before. Those who had never even seen linen all their lives I clothed in byssus cloth from head to foot. I took the people by the hand, and in their souls they looked to me just as an orphan looks to its mother." Now exactly how an orphan looks to its mother and remains an orphan is something that King Kilomua doesn't make clear, but we see in his inscription an example of the prerogative of kings from time immemorial, that of expansive self-aggrandizement. The royal court that surrounded a king reflected both the royal ideology and the cosmology that was the underpinning of kingship and the other major ideological institutions of a given society. Now, what do we mean by that? The realm of the polytheistic gods runs on magic, which is to say an all-pervading indifferent power that anyone with the right knowledge can access, be they human or divine. It's not quite right to compare them with our sense of the laws of physics, although there was an internally consistent logic presumed to be in operation, and it was available to all in theory. What this means is that the world of the kings in our northern model was one of magicians, priests, diviners, and so on. They formed their cliques, their factions, and there were the inevitable squabbles, as each jockeyed for power and influence in the royal court, using their purported magical ability, or superior knowledge gained through divination to make their case. No king could ignore these issues, whether they actually believed in them or not. By contrast, the best counterexample to the polytheistic royal ideology would be the various throne theophanies we see in the Israelite prophets. These visions of the heavenly court are, of course, modeled on their earthly Israelite counterparts, idealized appropriately. The best of these is the, uh, is the one in Isaiah chapter 6. There's another extensive throne theophany in Ezekiel, but it's, well, kind of like Isaiah on acid. There are traces in different parts of the Bible of a divine council, but it's clear that God is the only being that matters. He, and nothing else, is the reason things happen, or not. The only court here we ever hear about ironically, uh, is Satan when he presents himself before the throne of God in the book of Job. Nearly all of the messengers and angels that accompany God or that God sends down to do His work don't even have names. That doesn't mean that based on the heavenly model that Israelite kings did not have courtiers. They did, and lots of them. There were even, later on, court prophets that were more like partisan pundits that served similar functions, uh, similar to diviners and pundits elsewhere in other times. The place of magic and divination especially marks a stark contrast between the Israelite kings and their neighbors. It is true that Israelites had means of inquiring of God. A prophet or prophets could take up that task, or, like Nathan the court prophet in David's reign, he might just show up one day with an oracle. The closest thing to an oracular ritual that we hear of in the Israelite court was the Urim and Thummim, which were apparently two stones kept in a pouch in the breastplate of the high priest. By reaching into the pouch and drawing one of the stones at random, one received a yes-no answer to an inquiry. Clearly, there was no desire to replicate the huge, complex institutions of divination found in other royal courts, and for that matter, most forms of divination were actually forbidden in ancient Israel. Now, while the other kings had plenty of yes-men, there were also instances where the daily divination rituals might signal a danger that the king could not ignore. No major undertaking, and many minor ones, had to have a favorable omen before starting. If the sheep livers didn't look the way they were supposed to, well, that could stop a project in its tracks. A good example of how omens could totally mess up your day was the institution of the Shar Puchi, or substitute king. In those rare instances when a really, really bad omen showed up, such as an eclipse, that signaled the impending death of the king, that nothing could stop, the king would retire, and some poor schlub was designated as the substitute king. The theory was that when the predicted disaster took place, the substitute would take one for the team, and leave the real king untouched. Meanwhile, the real king would undergo a rigorous regimen of purification and repentance on the theory that he had committed some sin so grave that only his death would suffice as punishment. Usually, a substitute king reigned no longer than one hundred days. If nothing had happened by that point, it was assumed that the king was in the clear. However, in one famous instance, a gardener was appointed as the Sharpuki, but while he was on the throne, the real king died. The gardener apparently remained on the throne as king, for real. Diviners in other kingdoms could also serve as yes-men to the king. The truth of the matter was that the literature of divination was so vast, with so many schools of thought and so many exceptions to so many rules, that if the king really, really needed a favorable omen, chances are that a compliant diviner could wrangle one. Or, provided there were enough sheep or goats, he could keep asking until he got a favorable reply. Or he might motivate his diviners to be more creative about their interpretations. Finally, the king could just ignore the omens and press ahead with whatever he wanted to do. Rank hath its privileges. But, as we saw last time, in the case of King David... The prophet Nathan was able to accuse David openly of adultery and murder to David's face and make the charge a stick. But I think this had as much to do with the character of David as it did with Nathan's moral authority and the theocratic nature of the Israelite monarchy. One question about Israelite kings that remains a huge matter for debate is whether they thought of themselves as divine. There are a number of instances in the Old Testament where Israelite kings are described as though they were divine. The notion that the Davidic covenant was an unconditional assurance of a perpetual dynasty under God's protection suggests a belief in divine kings, as do other passages that ascribe divine power to kings. On the other hand, if that were the case, it's a pretty safe bet that the prophetic critics of the royal court would have vigorously contested the idea that the king was divine, and we see none of that in their otherwise unsparing assessments of royal faults. One suggested solution is that the Israelites held that the office of kingship was divine, but the kings themselves were not. The question remains a matter of controversy. The Israelite royal ideology held that even though Israel had a human king, the true king of Israel was God, and always would be God. This created problems when the conventional expectation of God's protection clashed with events in which Israel did not enjoy the kind of protection she was looking for. The later monarchy during the time of the prophet Isaiah and the Assyrian crisis was perhaps the best example of this terrible ambiguity. When Isaiah insisted that the otherwise irresistible Assyrian army was no match for God, and that trust in Him alone would save Judah, where military and political prowess could not, one can't help but sympathize with the kings who were responsible for dealing with the very tangible threats they faced, or understand their skepticism of prophetic instructions to do nothing except trust in God. Perhaps these dilemmas, the sharp prophetic critique, and other factors gifted Israel over the years with the ability to see kingship in general with a slightly jaundiced eye, and this, I suspect, has been to their overall advantage. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.